Hi, I'm Richard O'Brien. It's the 15th of June at 4.35 in the afternoon, and this is Now Here We Are 30 Years Later, a memoir in Mountain Goat Songs. Each episode looks at a year in my life through the lens of a song by John Darnielle. Today we're in 1993 and the song is Going to Cleveland. In a video recently posted on YouTube, John Daniel discovers an old lyric sheet for an unreleased song named New Suit, tucked into a copy of Sophocles, an author he was studying at Scripps College in his hometown of Claremont, where he was approaching the end of a double major in English and classics around 1993-4. Demonstrating the unfinished tune for viewers interested in his composition process, he launches into the first line, Smoke rises up from distant fires, over a restrained, muted strum, then stops. That's how it would be if it was the Mountain Goats now, the singer chuckles wryly, before considering a rather different proposition. What would this have sounded like when it was written? The answer is a sudden welter of sound, as if the person producing it has been jammed into a generator with some of the cables still loose. Daniel hammers out a series of rapid, ringing open chords and hurls himself into a melody so strident it makes him screw his eyes up. The veins begin to bulge in his neck. This is, perhaps, the archetypal image of the band's boombox era, though delivered by a performer tapping into a version of himself from nearly three decades earlier. A passionate young man, bristling with energy and dedicated to making as much noise as possible. The source of that noise is an instrument Daniel hadn't initially even realised could be played that way. Having set his cap early on against a certain kind of stereotypically Californian confessionalism, The acoustic guitar originally struck him as a soft instrument, not well suited to the hard-rocking preferences of a player who was already a serious thrash fan. But as he told Acoustic Guitar Magazine, in a sentence whose brevity belies its intensity, after a week alone in a room with it, all my preconceptions fell away. Though I doubt he's ever really embraced the imprecise folk-punk tag, The tension between its terms speaks to what stands out in an acoustic context about Daniel's most indicative strumming pattern, out in force on new suits. An insistent dagger-da-dagger-da-dagger which speeds up towards a rattling, rapid-fire conclusion. The intensity of this attack, even without more intricate melodic work, might call to mind the aesthetics of metal, unamplified. It reminds me of nothing so much as the brittle ferocity of the wedding present, down to the closing freakout where it feels as if the instrument assaulted like this might simply fall apart in the guitarist's hands. The voice over the top shares something with the frothing frustration of David Gedge, especially on tenser compositions like the later Baboon, but with more agility and a gung-ho, in-for-a-penny attitude to sustaining notes. One listen, for instance, to Going to Wisconsin or Going to Chino, on both of which John throws himself around the melody like an exuberant child on a climbing frame, supports Sasha Freire Jones's contention that Daniel may be the least self-conscious singer alive. And perhaps here is a good place to note that something which has always impressed me about the Mountain Goats is the self-belief necessary to release recordings like this into the world, to push on through your own limitations and trust that people will still find something in the work which speaks to them. Growing up as a kid with dodgy fine motor skills, prone to weird noises and awkward movements, there was something inherently liberating about discovering a singer who seemed not to give a fuck if he didn't look or sound normal, who was comfortable enough to own his imperfections, who had found a way to channel all the messiness and fallibility of the body into an electrifying energy on stage. In a Catholic context, we might link all of this to the operations of grace, the idea that human endeavour is always falling short or flat, 
but that our inevitable flaws are not beyond forgiveness. Watching John fuck a note up, cackle through it and grin has taught me more than any mental health influencer about the possibility of rejecting shame. Around 93, in which Daniel asserts he had the most bonkers productive summer of his writing life to date, to 96, the cells in the songs released this year column on my master spreadsheet for this project start to expand like accordions. So on a practical level, it's hard to see how he could have found the time to make each recording note perfect, which was never the point. John has described the white heat of his early process. Read until something jumps out at me, or watch horror movies or TV psychologists with the sound down. Play guitar and ad-lib out loud until I get a phrase I like. Write the lyrics, get the song together, record immediately. The shape of songs emerged in the wake of these improvisations, often over reasonably traditional chord patterns, with an intense focus, usually in one sitting. Daniel has spoken in more recent interviews about the necessary sculpting process of revision after the initial creative spark, but over the years sections of the fanbase have undeniably fetishised the relative rawness of these early releases. Transmissions to Horace is a set of nine original songs and one Commodore's cover, written and recorded over the course of one week during the 1992 Christmas holidays. Its opening number, Going to Cleveland, has attracted a small group of listeners who adhere to the very hard line that it's the absolute high watermark of the Mountain Goats. May God bless their souls, as John writes in the liner notes to a compilation reissuing much of this material, 2002's Bitter Melon Farm. Going to Cleveland is certainly representative of some key facets of the boombox era. It takes the form of a breakup conversation between two lovers who seem to always be talking past each other, You say you wanted to strike first, because one of us was leaving, that's what you say. But I've always been real fond of you, so I never would have treated you this way. While the relationships between the parties aren't always clear, this framework of miscommunication recurs across the year's bumper crop of songs. You said the soil looked nitrogen poor, but for myself it looks kind of nitrogen rich, from Sunsong. I hear you talking, shut up, from the hot garden stump, and a passage from Going to Monaco worth quoting in full, The sea gobbles up the full sun, and I look at you, and I know you're the one, the one I used to know something about. And I tried to say what it was, but the words won't come out, and you asked me to hold you? That's the devil's work. I'd be remiss not to mention the alpha couple here, to whom at least six Mountain Goat songs had been dedicated by this point. There are a few more succinct distillations of the feeling that the person you love has started to feel like an unreachable stranger than the chorus of the second of these to see daylight, alpha double negative, going to Catalina. And I know what you're saying, and I know what you're saying it for, but I'm not listening. I'm not listening anymore. Daniel's interest in these kind of dynamics arises partly from the common reality of divorce in Southern California, including, of course, his own parents, who separated when he was five years old. But going to Cleveland explicitly, if playfully, sets itself against a biographical reading. And you say, hey, John, where are you going? But that's not my name anymore. This is one of many ways in which the early tapes don't represent a linear starting point which leads to the later work. Fans who came on board in the 4AD era might expect these tapes to be packed wall-to-wall with fraught evocations of doomed relationships on a bed of basic cowboy chords, but the contents are more experimental than that. Taking that term as I've come to apply it on the MA module on experimental writing which I taught over the past few months, experimental can mean nothing more or less cerebral than trying stuff out. The fabled first song, Going to Alaska, hums with Hawaiian slide. Pure Milk features the synthetic drum loops and floating tones of the Casio SA7 keyboard, 
I've got frankly no idea how 2000 Seasons was recorded, but it sounds like a tentative lullaby intended to soothe a temperamental teleportation unit. A testament to Darnell's eclecticism, this flurry of experiments is also a natural enough thing to pursue in a small-scale tape-trading culture where you don't expect your work to need to perform consistency for a wider listenership. His rate of productivity here, even alongside his studying commitments, might simply be an indication of a writer coming to view his own craft as labour. Is it asking that much of a dude to write a song a week? And himself as one of what Leonard Cohen called the workers in song. But even as their author evades biographical content, it's hard to ignore the fact that the mid-20-something writing these songs has repeatedly told interviewers he didn't expect to make it past his 21st birthday, having moreover spent a lot of time assuming I would die by my own hand. I don't think I'm being overly sentimental in wondering if hyper-productivity is a natural consequence of feeling that a new lease on life has been handed to you, an unforeseen and precious opportunity for hauling these songs to the light from the mouth of the grave. In 1993, I was looking elsewhere for my doses of sublime intensity, but you could say I was also animated with the energy of resurrection. Tractors were over, and their shock-jock misuse on pure milk had nothing to do with it. I was getting into dinosaurs. As for many kids, I think the appeal was at least partly the sense of scale involved. The size of the great stomping animals themselves, of course, but also the way their existence and extinction necessitate discussion of a kind of deep time, stretching so far beyond what any three-year-old child has ever experienced as to be unimaginable, unimaginable. Family legend has it that I learned to read by picking out the long, complicated names from looking at dinosaur magazines over my grandma's shoulder, and whether or not that's true, for me they've always been deeply linked with language and the imagination. When I came to edit an anthology of dinosaur poems for children in 2019, in an introduction that also functioned partly as an elegy for the woman who first brought their world to life for me, here's what I wrote. Because no one alive today has ever seen a dinosaur, everything we know about them is the result of people making up stories. And here's the story I made up about them for myself. I think dinosaurs are a great subject for poetry because they make us think about what another world was like. Our own Earth but very long ago before anything like humans was even a glint in the cosmic eye. Saying all those difficult names when all the animals you've seen in real life are called things like pig and dog and duck is almost like using a magic summoning spell. I never became a paleontologist like I wanted to do when I was a little boy, but I did become a writer and I think dinosaurs had a lot to do with it. No one in my family had been to university before me, but reading about dinosaurs made me curious and interested in knowing about things, to the point where my nan used to call me the professor, which is now my job. My grandma Joyce Junkin died a year before the anthology came out. To the best of my knowledge, she never heard a mountain goat song, and I don't know what she would have made of it if she had. But it was important to me, in that introduction and in all I do, to be a witness to her life and to its worth. Nan was a keen gardener, and she nourished me in my developing interests as much as any plant. John, meanwhile, around the same time, drew the cover to Hot Garden Stomp on the porch of his nonagenarian grandmother's house while she slept. I don't know what the plant on it is supposed to be, if it's even real. It has a certain eldritch character but I imagine it needs the same things to flourish as we all do, from the smallest lithops to the tallest Jurassic tree fern, a trinity Daniel spells out at the very end of the boombox era. A little water, a little bit of sunlight, and a little bit of tender mercy. Thank you for sticking around to the end. 
here are a few more small shards of shrapnel I couldn't fit into the main episode. Other than that sweet Cuyahoga glow, I'm not sure there's any particular reason the narrator of our featured song has chosen Cleveland specifically to escape his problems, but on the other hand, as 30 Rock's Jack Donaghy reminds us, we'd all like to flee to the Cleave. To my list of early Mountain Girls experiments, I'd add that from the Screaming Jay Hawkins reference alone, it's clear that there's also strong blues influences on Daniel's writing in the period. Witness the high chord voicings of Beach House, the repetitive structures of Don't Take the Dogs Away, and the widespread tendency to add tension by sliding in and out of sevenths and suspensions. And lastly, though Pure Milk might have finally ruined tractors for me, Imagine my delight on discovering a Daniel interview which features a bunch of toy John Deere's impressive enough to make the farmers of Colo, Iowa shift in their chairs at a local auction. This episode was written and produced by me, Richard O'Brien. Most of the songs featured in this week's entry can be found on the Spotify playlist at the bottom of the newsletter. The songs on Transmissions to Horace were re-released on the 2002 compilation Bitter Melon Farm, you can buy the other 1993 release, Hot Garden Stomp, as part of a two-CD reissue from Shrimper, which also contains The Hound Chronicles. Thanks to John Daniel for letting me quote from his songs, and to Camilla Chen and Dave Talbot for the drawing of Indiana Sawgrass on my arm in the header image. The sources of all other quotes are given in the show notes and linked directly in the newsletter version of this episode. If you enjoyed the show, you might like to know we now have an Instagram at 30 underscore years underscore later where I post new episodes and answers on game shows which I only know because of them having previously featured in Mountain Ghost songs, and where I'll soon be sharing some experiments with my newly, if imperfectly, repaired Panasonic RX FT500 boombox, aiming to replicate the experience of John Darnielle's early writing and recording process from the inside. If you want to hear the results, follow the Instagram, and you can also find me on Twitter at NotRockyHorror. You can also get the podcast version of the newsletter on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. All that's left to say is please subscribe to the Substack and tell your few remaining friends. This week, Richard is getting into 30 first-year poetry assignments which he has to mark before Monday, so see you on the other side.